This morning we're going to conclude our series on how to be a first responder to the gospel by looking at the last foundational response you and I are to have towards the good news of Jesus Christ. If you recall, the gospel is the good news that according to the pages of Scripture alone, sinners like you and like me can be saved. How? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And according to our outline passage that we've been looking at in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, there are four foundational responses we are to have to the gospel for the glory of God. We just finished a song expressing our desire to worship the Lord. How ought we to live lives that ascribe to God the worth that is due His name? Scripture tells us, first, we are to believe. We are to believe. We are to acknowledge our sin and our condemned state before God. And we are to embrace the saving message of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And once we have believed, we are to be baptized. We are to go public with our profession of Jesus Christ and confess that I know Him who is true and I am in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, by being baptized, we are baptized into the body of Christ. We are added to the local assembly of believers. We are to identify ourselves as God's people with those whom God identifies himself with. Um, and as we saw last week, the way that we do that in the context of a faith family of a local church is by being devoted. Being devoted to building each other up in the word of grace the throne of grace, and the fellowship of grace. This is what makes a church a church and not just a country club. This is how we show the world that we belong to Jesus for the glory of God. Believe, be baptized, be added, be devoted. Well, this morning we're going to look at one final fundamental response we are to have to the gospel. It was hidden in our passage, and so I hid it from you until this morning. Got to keep you on your toes somehow. But there is one final fundamental response that we are to have to the gospel for the glory of God. And it's implied in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. All of this believing that we've been studying about in this passage, all this being added, all this being baptized, being devoted, all of this that we've been studying from the beginning of the early church was in response to something very specific. Acts 2.41 says this, those who received what? His word were baptized, were added, were devoted, and all the rest. The entire, this entire mystery of the church began with someone proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And this entire mystery called the church continues with Christ's followers proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the fifth foundational response that we are to have to the gospel for the glory of God. Be proclaiming. Be proclaiming the gospel that you believe. Be sharing the Jesus who has captured your heart for His glory. Be declaring the Lord that you have given your life and eternity to in worship. This is what Jesus commands every one of His followers to be doing. He commands it in every single one of the four Gospels that are given in the New Testament. In Matthew 28, 19-20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. In Mark eleven fifteen, Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Luke 24, 47, Jesus says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations. And in John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Four times in all four Gospels, go and proclaim the good news. 
And what's interesting is that all these calls to proclaim the gospel occur at the end of the four gospels. It's it's as if Jesus is making the point, even in the writing of the gospels, that now that you've understood the gospel, now that you know who Jesus is and what he has done, and now that you have responded to the gospel for the glory of God and believed, go now and tell the whole world. This is the last response we are to have to the gospel. Be proclaiming it. Believe, be baptized, be added, be be devoted, and be proclaiming. We as followers of Christ are to be proclaiming this good news of Jesus Christ that has transformed our hearts, our lives, and our eternal destinies. We cannot keep it to ourselves. Christ is worthy to receive more worship in our families, in our communities, in this world than He is receiving at this very moment. He must be proclaimed. This is called the Great Commission. It's the last command. It's the last mission. God gave His followers, Christ gave His followers before He ascended back into heaven. And we're going to examine this great task of evangelism, of proclaiming the good news biblically through a series of four points this morning. I am overwhelmed by all that I want to share with you this morning. I want to just let you know here at the beginning, this is the best I could do giving you a summary of what the Bible teaches concerning our obligation to proclaim the good news as well as addressing various issues that I'm seeing in the world today regarding evangelism. So first... We're going to consider our connections to evangelism this morning. In other words, how do we get from getting past the superficial and begin actually building a bridge and making a connection with someone who's lost? Making a connection that is meaningful and redemptive in nature. Get beyond just talking about the weather. How do we make that connection? Biblically, what are our connections to evangelism? Second, we're going to look at our course for evangelism. In other words, once we have uh, the pathway for a redemptive relationship built with someone, a relationship through which uh, the message of redemption can be passed, how do we approach the actual act of evangelizing, of proclaiming the gospel? What pathway or course should we take? Third, we're going to consider our content in evangelism. Not one witnessing opportunity ever looks like another. And so what is the basic content or truths that we should try to communicate when we get the opportunity with someone who's lost? And finally, we're going to look at our compulsions towards evangelism. In other words, what truths should motivate us to to establishing redemptive relationships with people and opening up our mouths to proclaim the saving truths to them when we get the chance? What ought to motivate us? towards that. So this morning we're going to look at our connections, course, content, and compulsion for evangelism. I've been looking forward to this message for quite a long time, uh, but before we begin, let's just ask the Lord to bless the teaching and receiving of his word today, whose truth we keep with our whole heart, though the insolent smear us with lies. We hold his truth to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning First and foremost, for Jesus Christ, we thank you that in him we have seen your glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you that in Jesus and at the cross we see your character unfolded for us to behold and understand. We acknowledge, Father, that you are a righteous and a just God that does not overlook iniquity. For we've seen our iniquity judged in your Son, Jesus Christ. But we also acknowledge this morning that we see at the cross that you are a God that is loving and merciful and full of forgiveness and compassion. For in Christ dying in our place, we have been forgiven and set free. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have new life. We have new purpose. We have new hope and peace and joy in Christ. We have good news. 
We live in a world of bad news. We have the good news. May we be faithful with it. May we be good stewards of the treasure that you have planted in us. Though we are jars of clay, we have a treasure the world needs to hear. And so help us, Father. Remind us of that great mission that we have been invited into. And may we with joy proclaim the Jesus that we love and adore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first step in approaching this great task of evangelism is understanding our biblical connections to evangelism. See, all of us have connections with those who are currently outside the saving covenant of forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. We all have connections with those who are unredeemed, though they might look differently. Uh, They might be our kids, or our parents, or our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, our bosses, maybe even our elected representatives. We all have connections with those who are lost. The problem is, they're superficial connections. They're temporal connections. You know, if we connect with the unsaved, we usually connect with them on the level of hobbies and interests, of politics and programs. But you need to remember this morning that every single one of those things will burn. They will not survive the day of judgment. So how do we connect with them in a way that encourages the gospel to go forth? That we're just not only known as good people, we're known in their minds as gospel people. How do we make that connection? Well, God gives us two answers. We have two tools for creating and developing redemptive relationships with the unsaved. Those two tools are our individual witness and our corporate witness. So first, let's consider our individual witness this morning. Often when it comes to evangelism, we are tempted to think, oh, the way that I begin establishing a relationship, a meaningful connection with this person, is by establishing similarities. If they like sports, I better better watch sports. If they like hunting, I better buy a rifle. If they like movies, I better stay up what's going on in the theaters. But listen, that is not what the Bible teaches. The path to establishing redemptive relationships with the unsaved is not by showing them your similarities. It's by showing them your differences. This is seen most clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. If you'd go ahead and turn there this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, Peter, uh, the apostle, has been working through the various relationships that a believer has in his life. And when Peter comes to addressing a believer's relationship with the unsaved world, addressing the topic of evangelism, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.12. He says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, if you want to be used by God to bring sinners from the place of slander to the place of salvation, then you need to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That you've got to keep it God-fearing and pure. And after describing what that looks like in the spheres of government and employment and marriage, Peter says in verse 15 of chapter 3 that the result of living that type of God-honoring lifestyle will be people asking you a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, it is as we as Christians live a markedly devoted and different life, one that honors in our hearts Christ the Lord is holy, that the unsaved world begins to take notice and is compelled to ask us, why? Why are you the way you are? Why did you just react the way that you reacted? How come when I'm freaking out about what's going on in the world, you're not? What makes the difference? 
Ladies and gentlemen, that is our connection to sharing the gospel. It is our individual witness. It is the argument that the world cannot ignore. It is the first tool that God has given us to establishing redemptive relationships with the lost, and it is powerful. It can be used to win over the most hardened hearts. They might be able to close their ears, but they can't shut their eyes to the message you proclaim every single day by your life. Our lives, our, our, our actions are the arguments they cannot ignore. God causes the unsaved to begin to take notice of the gospel, not through our relevance, nor through our reason, but through our reverence to Jesus Christ. That's your tool in establishing a connection with the lost. Not being hip and relevant. Not being argumentative, full of reason. But by being deeply devoted in your heart to Christ as Lord. Effective evangelism begins here. It begins in our own hearts. It all begins with establishing such a devotion to Jesus Christ on the inside that it begins to capture the attention of those who are watching you from the outside. That's pretty convicting when you think about it. When's the last time someone has taken a close look at your life, thoughts, and actions and on their own concluded that there is something more than just you're a moral person, but that you're a deeply different person and they need to know why? What makes you so different? See, it all begins in our hearts. Evangelism doesn't start out there. Evangelism starts right here. Begins in the heart. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Do not neglect the first tool God has given you for establishing effective, redemptive connections with those who are lost. That is your individual witness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16... Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God has given our individual witness to establish redemptive connections to the law. Second, God has given us our corporate witness. Our corporate witness. This is something that we don't often think about, but our individual witness to unbelievers can be greatly strengthened and made more effective by bringing that individual that we're trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ into contact with the greater body of Christ. Jesus says this in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. See, in other words, one of the ways that the world comes to know that Jesus is real and that we belong to him is when they see the love that we have, not just from us to them, but from us to our other brothers and sisters in Christ. When we bring them close to the fellowship of grace that we talked about last week, when when they see the type of supernatural love that God is creating in a place like this where we love one another and serve one another and forgive one another and pray with one another and live at peace with one another and so much more, they start to realize that there is something real going on here that can't be ignored. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 14, 24-25 when he says this, But if all prophesy... That is, if all are speaking God's word to one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. Therefore, he says in verse 26, let all things be done for building up And the context is clear, he's saying, building up the believers in the church. See, a lot of people think that for a church body, just like how we think individually, that for a church body to have an effective corporate witness to the unsaved world, the church should carefully craft its gatherings and its services around the interests and concerns of the unredeemed. Craft your music for them, your activities for them, even your Sunday morning messages for them. Don't go too deep. Keep things familiar. Focus on surface-level felt needs. Now, it is important to remember your audience, but essentially that philosophy today 
is that all things on Sunday morning should be done for evangelizing the lost. Well, in fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. All things are not to be done on Sunday mornings for evangelizing the lost. All things are to be done on Sunday mornings for the edification of the saints, building up believers. When the church scatters, that's when evangelism is supposed to take place through those connections you've been establishing. When the church gathers, that's when edification and building up the saints is to take place. We soak it in on Sunday morning and we're to squirt it out throughout the rest of the week. Let all things be done for building up. The church, ladies and gentlemen, is for the church. And in fact, that's when Paul says here that it is when a church remembers this fact that their corporate witness actually becomes the most powerful. We as believers create the most powerful witness for Jesus Christ, not by highlighting our similarities with the lost, but by highlighting our differences. They might, uh, an unbeliever might think that the Bible, God, Jesus, and Christianity is all a farce, right? But then they come to a church... And they hear this guy give a really long prayer and nobody's bored by it and they are. Now what's up with that? And then they hear some guy speak up, hopefully only 45 minutes. What's up with this? And they're all paying attention. And then you see people all of a sudden emotionally reacting to this book that's ancient. What is going on? And all of a sudden all their arguments fall apart and say, wait a minute, something's going on here I don't understand. I mean, that's, that's where the church's witness comes from. It's not by becoming like the world. It is by the church becoming more like the church. When people come to this service who do not know Christ, they might think the Bible, God, Jesus, and Christianity are false, are farce. But Paul says here, bring them into a situation where they're the odd man out. Put them into an environment where God's word is proclaimed, where God's character is exalted, where God's spirit is at work, where God's people are being built up, where God is central to everything and everyone. Give them a taste of heaven for an hour. Give them a taste of the fellowship of grace and watch God do the work. The lost will be convicted. They'll be brought to account. They'll be humbled and they'll be brought to the point of worship and confession. The church has that effect on the unbelieving, not by being similar to the lost, but by being different. This is the second tool God has given us for establishing uh, effective, redemptive communications with those who are lost. It is our corporate witness as God's people. And so here's a suggestion for you this morning. If there is someone that you have been working on to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ, and you're making little to no progress at this point, I want to encourage you this morning. Shake things up a bit. Don't keep them in isolation any longer. Bring them among the body of Christ. Let them see the love and the honor that we have for each other and the love and the honor that we have for God and for Jesus. And perhaps God will use us and you together to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. These are the tools God has given us for establishing redemptive relationships and connections with the unsaved. It is our, it are, it is our individual and it is our corporate witness. But let's say that God has been using you. And it's become evident that you're going to be given the opportunity soon to share the gospel with a specific individual. You're going to have a chance to share the truth. How do we handle that moment of evangelism? What approach do we take for evangelism? That's what I want us to consider next. This is our course for evangelism. How should believers biblically approach the task of proclaiming the good news? Well, our approach towards evangelism is twofold. It is to pray... And it is to proclaim. Pray and proclaim. First, pray. Whenever we're talking about the issue of salvation and evangelism, it is always critical to start at this point. In Luke 18, Jesus has just talked about how difficult it is for someone to enter into the kingdom of God. Today's pastors make it sound really easy. Just come forward, pray a prayer, that's all that's required. It's not how Jesus answered it. He described someone coming to salvation in such extreme terms that the disciples cried out in Luke 18, 26, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. There Jesus makes it crystal clear. Salvation is absolutely impossible. 
But all things are possible. How? With God. Evangelism is only effective towards salvation when it's being accompanied by God in your efforts. God is the only one who can make the impossible possible. He's the only one who can bring the dead to life, who can make the blind man see. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the state of every unbeliever. They're blinded by Satan. Blinded to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. You could have the most eloquent presentation in the world. They will never get it. They can't see the glory of Christ. They can't see His worth. I don't know how many times I have been sharing the gospel with someone. And the person's following, and the person's understanding, and all of a sudden, something changes. You can see it on their faces. It's the most heartbreaking thing. They stop listening. They stop understanding. They stop in a moment from caring. The veil is over their hearts. That's what Scripture says. They're blind. They're in total darkness. And there's nothing I can humanly do about it. It's a hopeless cause until I come to verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which says this, But God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who spoke light out of darkness can speak life into dead men's souls. And who can rip the blindness off of eyes of faith. All things are possible with God. And so if we truly believe the gospel that we've been studying, that I've explained for the first six weeks here, if we truly believe the gospel that salvation by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone is a gift of God's grace alone, then all evangelism starts right here on our knees. You have not started to evangelize a person's soul, until you started praying for them. Evangelism starts not only in our own hearts, it starts on our knees. As Paul says in Romans 10 verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. This is where evangelism begins, asking God to do what only God can do. So our course for approaching evangelism biblically begins with prayer. And second, proclaim. Proclaim, and this is pretty basic, but to evangelize, this might be a newsflash for you, you've actually got to open up your mouth and speak. This is, you know, there's this phrase that goes around that's called lifestyle evangelism. I understand where they're coming from. It's kind of what I talked about in the previous point. But that phraseology always makes me cringe because your lifestyle can't evangelize. It can create a bridge to evangelism, but if all you do is live your life and never open your mouth and share the truths of Christ, you've not evangelized. You can live a totally transformed life before others, but if you never give them a reason for the hope that is in you, a reason for your transformed life, they'll go to the grave thinking that the strength belonged to you and not to Jesus, and that the secret was you and not Christ. Don't make the very reason for your life, don't make Jesus a secret. To evangelize, you've got to open up your mouth. And by the way, this is what the word means. Evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelizo, which means to preach, to proclaim, or to herald the good news. And I love that definition because it is so true. This is what evangelism is. It's just heralding the good news that we've heard. It's throwing the seed out of God's saving truth and letting it land where it lands. Evangelism is not a technique or a method. It is a simple and forthright communication of the truth to those who need to hear it. That's what a herald does. Think of the uh, Middle Ages, right? 
when a herald would walk into a Times Square, he would stand up on a box or something. He would unroll his scroll and he'd say, Hear ye, hear ye, thus says the king. That's what he did. The herald does not create his own personalized presentation of the message along with a little soft shoe dance. He doesn't do any of that. He simply delivers the news. He simply proclaims the message. That's what evangelism is. You say, well, I don't know if I'm equipped to share the message. Listen, if you knew enough truth to trust in Jesus Christ, if God opened your mind to that extent to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you know enough truth to proclaim it to someone else who's lost. You just deliver it. That's what evangelism is. I mean, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, uh, a passage I'm going to teach on one of these days because it so defines my ministry and the way I approach it. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2 says this, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We don't manipulate the message or try to package it in any clever way. We just let the word do the work. And it will. Romans 1.16 says it is the power of God unto salvation. In evangelism, you don't have to be any more creative with the word of God than a soldier does have to be creative with a hand grenade. You just let it go and watch it do its work. Just chuck it out there and see what it does. It's what God's word says. We proclaim the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, not our wonderful package of it. Just speak the truth in love. Go into all the world, Jesus said, and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. And I love Jesus' expression there, all of creation, because it's almost extreme. You almost get the picture of someone walking up to a tree and being like, let me tell you about Jesus, and a flower. Let me tell you about Jesus, and walking up to a a stone. Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is trying to be very emphatic here, saying you just go and herald the truth to everyone and everywhere you go. Proclaim it. Pray and proclaim. This is our course of approaching moments of evangelism. Pray and proclaim. I'm afraid it won't come out of my mouth right. It doesn't have to. Just give God's word. Proclaim it. It'll do the work. It's not up to you. It's up to God. Pray and proclaim. But what do we proclaim? That brings us next to our content in evangelism. Our content in evangelism. And we've already looked at that, haven't we? For six weeks, we looked at the good news that people are called on to believe that according to the pages of Scripture alone, sinners like you and I who would otherwise be hopelessly condemned can be saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We've looked at that. Now, that's a great summary of the gospel in its fullness. But I want to be very practical this morning because I'm sure it's not just in my own experience. Few of us rarely, if ever, get the chance to declare the gospel in its entirety in one sitting. Am I correct? Often you only get the chance to share maybe one sentence, two sentences, maybe a paragraph if you were to write it out of, of information before that opportunity passes you by. So often, you know, it's true the Romans road is helpful, but it doesn't work in circumstances like that, does it? So how do we take advantage of those opportunities? What should be our content in our evangelism when the person that we're checking out our groceries with mentions something about going on in the world? When the person that's in our neighbor just mentions something that they saw in the news? How do we, how do we take advantage of that opportunity? What content do we want to communicate in the gospel in that moment? What should we be focusing on? If I had to, if I had to summarize it, our content in evangelism would be focused on four categories of truth that are not original to me. God, man, Christ, and response. We should seek in our evangelism to communicate at least something about what the Bible says about God, about man, about Christ, or about the response you are to have towards him. This is the framework that the apostles worked from. Paul uses it, by the way, in Romans uh, chapters 1 through 4. Wish I had time. I don't this morning. But in Romans 1... Take my word for it. You can look it up later. Paul 
Uh, he focuses on God in Romans chapter 1. God is the creator of all mankind to whom all men must give an account. He introduces God at the end of Romans chapter 1 on through to the beginning of chapter 3. Paul focuses on man. Man as unrighteous. Man as sinful. Man as given over to wicked lusts. Man as standing without excuse before God because of their deeds. At the end of Romans chapter 3, Paul focuses on Christ. Christ as the pleasing sacrifice for sins. The one through whom redemption and forgiveness comes. And then at the end of Romans 3 and Romans 4, Paul focuses on response. The response that is needed of repentance and faith towards God for salvation. So in Romans we see God, man, Christ, and response. Uh, You see this kind of show up in other passages in the book of Acts when you see how the apostles preached. I'm just going to give one example, uh, Acts 3, 18 through 20, which says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So right there you have all four categories addressed. God, man, Christ, and response. But if you're to study the rest of the book of Acts, you'll find out the apostles do not always have the opportunity to share all four of those truths. But they always try to communicate at least one of them in their interaction with unbelievers. So that's the point. These are the truths that we want to constantly be mentioning and drawing unbelievers' attention towards throughout the week. First, That God, God is our sovereign creator. And because of that, he is the perfect standard who is righteous and who loves righteous deeds. The one to whom all men must give an account. Second, we must mention in our interaction with unbelievers that man is sinful. And we see the consequences of that sin everywhere we look today. But the ultimate consequence for that sin will be separation from our righteous creator for all of eternity in a place of eternal torment called hell. Third, Christ. That Christ has come to save us from the penalty through through his death on the cross as a payment for our sins. He is the ultimate answer to life's problems. And fourth, that a response is required. That if you repent and believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and rely on him to save you from sin and death, you will be saved. But you must repent and believe. These are the four truths that no matter what interaction we're having, if you can mention something about God and what you know to be true about him, if you can mention something about man and our fallen state, if you can mention something about Christ and how he has come to deal with those consequences, and if you can mention something about their, their response, their need to turn from sin and trust in Christ, then you have planted a seed for a gospel. It might not always be the full presentation of the gospel. Even Paul said, some plant, some water, God brings the increase. You just throw the word out when you get the chance. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's our content in evangelism. Always draw it back to God, man, Christ's response. So having looked at our connections, our course, and our content in evangelism, let's finish finally by considering our compulsions towards evangelism. In other words, why should I feel compelled to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost? Well, there are two main motivations and compulsions that I want to mention that should cause a believer to share the gospel with someone who's lost. First is what I would call man-centered motivation. Man-centered motivation. You might be thinking, what? (laughs) If viewed rightly, there is a proper man-centered motivation to evangelism. And that is this, compassion. Compassion for those that are lost. Jesus exhibited this type of motivation in Matthew 9, verse 36, when it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They needed the truth. They needed him. And so Jesus went about and he preached the gospel to them. Paul showed this in in Romans 10, verse 1, which I already mentioned when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. This is a thoroughly appropriate 
motivation towards evangelism, your compassion for the lost. This is one of the ways, by the way, that God led me into the ministry. Just to keep it very short, it was July 4th, 2012, less than a year after the planes flew into the World Trade Center towers, our youth group had been walking on the Appalachian Trail, and they surprised us, our leaders, with a trip to New York City. We walked past Times Square, we walked past the New York Stock Exchange, past Broadway, past the Wax Museum that had a presidential exhibit, past so many stores filled with glitz and glamour. And all around us were millions of people everywhere running after all of these things until we finally came to the footprint of the World Trade Center Towers. The area was silent. A flag was hanging halfway up the skyscraper to show how high the pile of dust, metals, and bodies lay after the collapse. By then it was all cleared away. But what captured my attention in that moment was the only thing that remained in that area. And that was the only thing left standing after the towers fell. A small section of I-beams shaped into a perfect cross. And with that, I was struck with a truth as a high schooler I had never fully grasped before. Eternity. The crowds around me. And the greatest tragedy occurring on this earth. Here are millions of people running madly around, distracted by money, power, influence, popularity, literally blinded by the God of this world. Completely blinded to the fact that if they never trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, there is not a doubt in the world where they will end up. Their fate will be far worse than burning in towers. They will burn in torment forever for their sins and rebellion against God. If they never heard and believed in the Savior that I knew about. How true the words of C.S. Lewis. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It is the gentle slope, the soft underturnings, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I realized in that moment that is absolutely what will happen to every single individual I have ever met who has not trusted in Jesus Christ. If I said nothing, it was then that it became clear. If I can honor those first responders who gave their lives to save those who are doomed to die on September 11th, then surely I can give my life to save those who are doomed to die from an infinitely greater death. This is what my life must be all about. I must be a first responder not only to the gospel, I must be a first responder with the gospel. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, so much to you. You must give your life to this so that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 23, by any means necessary, I might save some. So this is the first compulsion towards evangelism, compassion for the lost. But this can't be the only motivation towards evangelism. If it does, it will not last. If you preach the gospel because you're thinking, oh, these poor people, without the gospel, they'll die and go to hell. They don't deserve that. I've got to go give them the gospel. If that's your only motivation, it won't take long before you burn out because in the face of scoffing, ridicule, rejection, and hatred, you'll discover very quickly no one deserves the gospel that you're preaching. Sinners deserve hell and judgment, not the gospel. Evangelism is by its very definition sharing the good news to those who never deserve to hear it and never will and yet doing so anyway. Day in and day out. So the question I want you to consider this morning is what compels a person to do that? To be a modern-day Isaiah who is told by God, I want you to preach your whole life long to people that will never listen to you, that people will never obey, to people that will never care and will never see. What compels a person to keep on sharing the gospel even when people hate you for it? And that brings us to, most importantly in evangelism, God-centered motivations for evangelizing. 
Ultimately, we share the gospel and we keep on sharing it with those who are lost, not because man is worthy to have the gospel proclaimed to them, but because God is worthy to have the gospel proclaimed to all nations. And so I want to finish this message by giving you three very quickly God-centered motivations for why you ought to be compelled to open your mouth with the truth this week to someone who's lost regarding God, man, Christ, and response. First, we desire to proclaim Christ because doing so is being obedient to God's command. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, and doing so obeys his command. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do what I tell you? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. We should desire to proclaim Christ because doing so is being obedient to God's command. Second, it's being thankful for God's blessing. When Jesus healed the demoniac in Mark 5, 19, Jesus told him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. In other words, Go and tell others how thankful you are for what God has done for you. That God has saved you. As the old hymn goes, the peace of Christ makes fresh my heart. A fountain ever springing. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? We should declare Christ because doing so is obedient to God's commands. It's being thankful for God's blessings. And then third, this is the one that thrills my heart it's being a part of God's joy I want you to turn to Luke 15 Luke 15 and we're ending here Luke 15 Jesus was asked by some people Pharisees and the like why he evangelized Jesus gives his answer in Luke 15 in Luke 15 Jesus is asked by the Pharisees why he eats with tax collectors and sinners Why he tries to establish these connections with people like this. Why he evangelizes. And so in response, Jesus tells in Luke 15 three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And in each one of those parables, the parable ends with an expression of joy when what was lost is made found. So in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus finishes the parable of the lost sheep by saying, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And then over in verse 10, Jesus finishes the parable of the lost coin by saying, just so I tell you, there is joy not among the angels, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in verse 32, Jesus finishes the parable of the lost son by saying that the father threw a grand feast and called on all to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So when Jesus is asked, why do you evangelize? Why do you tell the lost about about the gospel? Why do you declare salvation to them? It's because all of heaven erupts and is filled with God's joy when just one sinner turns from his wicked ways and lives. That's why Jesus preached the gospel. Beloved, that is what motivated Jesus in his evangelism and his mission. His Father's joy. There are many motivations we could have to engage in evangelism this week. But the highest, greatest, most supreme motivation in evangelism must be God's joy, God's pleasure, God's honor and glory. We proclaim the message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ because it pleases our Heavenly Father. Whether others ever listen to us or not. Listen, believer, I want you to understand this morning. God gets joy from us just sharing the gospel. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. Paul describes our efforts in evangelism this way. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Do you get that? Whenever we share the gospel, Paul says we are the aroma of Christ to God. Whether people get saved or not, either way, 
That act of seeking the lost for salvation is a pleasing sacrifice to God. It causes them joy. Why? Because in that moment when we are seeking to save the lost, we are reflecting the honor and character and glory of our Father in heaven. And He is filled with joy. He is filled with joy. That should motivate us. Should it not? should motivate us to proclaim the gospel this week and to make it our mission to reflect our Father's glory, to stir His heart with joy, and to seek and to save the lost. Because that's why we do what we do, is it not? The gospel dead ends to the glory of God alone. So this is how to be a first responder to the gospel. This is how we show the world that we belong to Him. Believe. Be baptized. Be added, be devoted, and be proclaiming. May God give us grace to show his worth to this generation, in this place, in these ways, for the glory of God alone. Believe, be baptized, be added, be devoted, be proclaiming. How much do you respond to the gospel for the glory of God today. Let's not be silent. Let's go and tell the whole world that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God to you today that I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this gospel that you have given us. Father, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you have made us alive together in Christ. Father, we thank you that by your grace you have worked in our hearts. Father, we pray that this morning there is someone here that has not responded to the gospel rightly for your honor and glory, that they would do that today. Father, I pray that they would believe if they have not. I pray that they would be baptized if they have not. I pray that they would be added to this church if they have not. I pray that they would become devoted to building each other up if they have not. And I pray that they would commit themselves, no matter what, to proclaiming your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, this week. For your honor and for your glory, we pray. Make us a people grounded and responding to the gospel. For your honor and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.